The only announcement that I know of that we need to uh, focus on tonight is just the, uh, oh, two things, actually, uh, collecting items to be shipped uh, to Ukraine for Jim Meyer's ministry. The deadline for that's going to be uh, the end of August, so pay attention to that, and also to pray for uh, Camp Arete. And then on the 31st of July, there will be the runoff election in uh, Texas, so make sure that you get an absentee vote if you need to do that and or um, uh, vote. Make sure you vote. That's in two weeks, so we need to make sure that gets uh, that gets done. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we express our gratitude that we can come together this evening to study your word. We're thankful for so many blessings that you've given us and provided uh, provisions for us that you have given us. Father, we continue to pray for Jim Myers and Phyllis as they travel through the southeast, going to different places and speaking, and we pray for their traveling safety and bless their, bless their ministry. Father, we continue to pray for us as a congregation that we might be responsive to the teaching of your word, that we might uh, be uh, open and take advantage of opportunities that we have to uh, present the gospel to those who come in our, into our lives and in our path and that we might be faithful in uh, the way in which we present the gospel. Now, Father, as we study this evening and as we focus on your word, we pray that we can concentrate that as we study, that we might be challenged by God the Holy Spirit in terms of our own thinking, that we may come to understand your word better and understand your work in the church better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 8 tonight. I don't think we'll get all the way into our study on Isaiah 53, which I want to use this as an opportunity to do, uh, but we will get into that next time. We may just touch on that uh, peripherally or by way of introduction some this evening. This is the continued story of how God the Holy Spirit is expanding the early church. Acts 1.8 was the final marching order from the Lord Jesus Christ to the uh, apostles that they were to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came, and then they were to be witnesses, keyword witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the outermost part of the earth. Then, as we see the first expansion of that, basically getting, finally forcing the apostles and Christians in Jerusalem to, to uh, expand, to move out from um, ground zero for Christianity, to move out of Jerusalem and into other areas, and that came only as a result of persecution. At, with the introduction of the, the overt persecution with the death of Stephen, we're first introduced to Saul of Tarsus just briefly at the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, and then we'll come back to him in um, chapter 9. So when we finish this, we start beginning to see this movement that takes place in Acts where we talk about Peter and then Paul, then uh, the work of Philip, then we go back to Paul, and then we talk about Peter, and then Paul, Peter, and Paul, Peter, and then it's just Paul for the rest of the the, uh, uh, the rest of the book. Now, in this section, we've looked at two two areas of expansion that have taken place now as a result of the persecution. 
The first has to do with the movement into uh, Samaria, uh, pro- to one of these two cities, probably Sikar, which is uh, uh, <clears throat> a Jewish city since ancient Samaria. At the t- first century, the Roman city of Sebast was primarily uh, Gentile, and so it was the city of Sikar, pro- most likely uh, the destination of Philip. And we studied how the gospel had an impact in Samaria and how that was the result of the movement of Philip out from Jerusalem. Now, the point I made on Sunday morning, and then I want to continue to have you think about as we go through uh, this section of Acts, is we see how the Holy Spirit is working uh, more overtly in these episodes. Uh, but there's no mention of the Holy Spirit uh, guiding or directing Philip in uh, verses 4 or 5. It, the, the, I think the message in Acts is that the Holy Spirit is always working behind the scenes, but it's in a, uh, it's in a covert manner. It's not something that is known or seen until after the fact. We only know it from its results. In the early church in this transition period, there were times when there was a more overt uh, direction from God the Holy Spirit, but that was uh, as we read through Acts and as we read through the, uh, the, the epistles, that's rare. And the reason I point that out is because there are always uh, some folks who, especially in light of a lot of uh, theological trends of the 20th century, they come along and they talk as if the Holy Spirit is is a very overt movement today, just as it was in the first century. And he wasn't. In fact, uh, as we get into uh, the episode in the latter part of this chapter, and we see the Holy Spirit overtly, actively, consciously, knowing, I mean, in a, in a manner that was known to Philip, moving him from one location to another, What's interesting is that this kind of expression in the in the book of Acts uh, pretty much disappears by the time we get towards the mid part of the book of Acts. By the time we get into Acts 12, Acts 13, Acts 14, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this manner. So that's part of the transition uh, that is take, taking place. It, the Holy Spirit is only mentioned as overtly moving the apostles in specific directions a few times or God directing them through the appearance of an angel. And in this episode with Philip going to uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, we have uh, both overt direction, objective guidance from an angel of the Lord mentioned in verse 26, and then we have uh, the Holy Spirit guidance coming up just a few uh, verses later in verse 29. But for those who want to make this a pattern or SOP for the church, the problem is that you have a few references to an overt ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, like this in Acts, in the early part of Acts, and then that is not mentioned anymore, and it's not that normative even in the first part, part of Acts. And what I mean by that is that's not the expected normal routine. What we really need to be asking is why isn't the Holy Spirit mentioned as having a more overt uh, guidance pattern in the rest of the New Testament? It's just not there. It's like when we look at it in light of some of the things we see in Acts 2, in Acts 4, in Acts 8, uh, in Acts chapter 10 with, uh, with Cornelius, what we see is this sort of overt divine guidance is very rare in the, even the early, uh, apostolic period. It is the normal, uh, mode of God's direction is more, um, more covert, more behind the scenes where its effect is felt more than, uh, any sort of sense of specific direction, revelation, uh, from God, it's mostly through either a circumstances or, as I pointed out, as they understood what the mission was, they tried to just go forward and accomplish the mission as it seemed best to them. And that's a phrase we'll see mentioned a few times. So that, that's how you see uh, uh, Philip making the first decision. He just moves out and goes to Samaria on his own initiative. There's no direct 
uh, overt guidance from the Holy Spirit. He just moves up there in contrast to what takes place in the second half. And I just added a red circle down around Gaza because I want you to note that there are uh, the, the, just the geographical locations that are mentioned in the latter part of the, uh, of the chapter. We have Gaza, which is uh, far down on the lower left. This is uh, uh, part of the, uh, the five, Gaza was part of the five cities of the Philistines in the Old Testament. This is the only mention or reference to Gaza uh, in the New Testament. Then uh, at the end, you'll see that, that Philip moves to uh, what was known in, in Greek as Azotus, which is modern Ashdod, and Ashdod was also one of the uh, one of the cities of the uh, of the Philistines in the ancient world. And then also there's the mention of Jerusalem. So those are the three locations that are mentioned in this chapter. After finishing the ministry in Samaria, uh, Peter and John, of course, had moved up to Samaria. And then they are uh, going to leave and go back to Jerusalem. And all we're told at the end of that section, verse 25, is when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, that is, Peter and John, they returned to Jerusalem, uh, evangelizing in many villages of the uh, Samaritans along the way. So they moved down to Jerusalem, but we're not told what happens to Philip. So Philip either is traveling with them back to Jerusalem, or Philip stays up in central Samaria and continues his ministry there, or we know later on, and I don't have this, I didn't put a circle on the map here, that's up here in this upper right hand, or excuse me, upper left hand area right on the coast of the Mediterranean is Caesarea Maritima, or Caesarea by the sea. This was his home later on, and he has already, may have already moved there, so he might have gone in that direction. We don't know exactly what happens uh, to Philip once they finish this this ministry in Samaria. So we have three options. He went to Jerusalem, he stayed in Samaria, or he headed to uh, Caesarea uh, Maritima. What we do know is there's an action scene. The, the curtain goes down as if this were a play, you'd have the curtain close at the end of verse 25, and then the curtain opens and with the scene in verse 26. So there's a something of a time lapse here. There's a sense in which I think sometimes people want to read these as if they happen one event right on top of the other, but they're not necessarily that quick in succession to one another. So the second event that's brought up is the direction that God gives to Philip now to, to move to the southern part of, of Judea. An angel of the Lord, now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Now, the direction that is uh, being given here, the guidance that is being given to Philip, uh, comes from an angel of the Lord. This is specifically stated, and this angel is not the same as the the angel of the Lord that we have in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very clear that the term terminology has an article with it, and it speaks of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, whereas here it is just speaking of an angel who is sent from God to give uh, guidance to Philip. And this would be overt guidance. He is going to speak from every normal usage of the term uh, speak. This would be a a verbal, audible uh, direction given to Philip and that the angel would have uh, appeared to him. That is the normative uh, uh, situation whenever you have either in the Old Testament or New Testament an angel giving guidance. It's not some sort of internal impression. It's not, uh, it's not a subjective uh, uh, feeling. Although what happens is because of the way some traditions and some people have read certain things is they read that into the text. But all the text says is an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, and the way to look at this, if you want to understand that, is to see how these words and this phraseology of an angel speaking 
uh, how that's used in other places in Scripture. And every other place that it's used in Scripture is you have a, a, a an appearance of an angel and an external, objective, audible uh, statement made by the angel. So this is not some sort of mystical, subjective, divine guidance through feelings. It is overt, special revelation via an angel. And the angel speaks to Philip and says, Arise uh, and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now that doesn't mean he's in Jerusalem. It just tells that this is the highway, uh, the main road that went from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now then you have another last little statement made there in the in the English there uh, saying this is desert. What's interesting is it's not very clear how that phrase relates to the rest of the sentence in in the um, in the Greek. The word desert could relate to either, uh, grammatically could relate to either Gaza or it could relate to road. So if it related to road, what it would be speaking about was that uh, it was uh, the, the, the desert part or a part where the road went through the desert. Or if it referred to Gaza, then what it would be referring to would be the ancient city of Gaza, which was destroyed in 96 B.C. by uh, one of the Hasmonean rulers, Alexander uh, Janius, and the new city of Gaza was not rebuilt until uh, approximately 56 B.C. Uh, by the Romans, and it was a few miles south of the ancient city that had been the, uh, the city, city of the Philistines. The ancient city uh, was... Uh, uh, had pretty much deserted, and here we have a. I put up a, a map here so you can see Gaza all the way down here in the lower uh, lower left, and the green line here represents one of the main roadways that went from Jerusalem south to Bethlehem. Just so you get some perspective here, the distance from Jer- Jerusalem to Bethlehem is a, only about seven or eight miles. It's it's very close. It's it's. Uh, uh, Bethlehem is closer to Jer- to Jerusalem than we are to the Galleria, so that gives you a little bit of perspective. It's it's very very close, and then they would, uh, but it's, Bethlehem gets you up in a much more hillier, more rugged environment, not unlike some of the area out around uh, maybe Fredericksburg or Lano or that uh, or the hill country uh, in uh, in central Texas, and then this this road goes off to the west and goes down through an uh, uh, area where they now have Beit Guvrin. This was an area where they, in, in the uh, Second Temple period, they uh, raised uh, pigeons and doves for sacrifice in the temple. And then Lachish was a site, a very famous site of an uh, ancient battle, uh, the Assyrians, see, the siege of Lachish at the time of Hezekiah. And so somewhere along uh, this roadway, Philip is going to uh, meet up with the Ethiopian. Now, here I have a picture of the uh, tell, uh, the excavation of the ancient, part of the ancient site of, of Gaza. And even at the time of the New Testament, this was an abandoned site, and it was often referred to to distinguish this site from the new city, this site was referred to as Desert Gaza. Desert Gaza. So when the text reads, this is desert, it could, and I believe probably is talking about the road to Desert Gaza, not the desert road to Gaza. And so that clarifies where uh, he was headed along the way. Now, God has only mentioned this one time in the Scripture, but, of course, we see it mentioned almost every day in, in the newspaper. It's frequently mentioned as the, in reference to the area known as the Gaza Strip. And the Gaza Strip, I think I'll go back, I had a little, is this area down here uh, that has been given over to Palestinian, complete Palestinian authority control. And back, I think it was 2003 or 2004, there was a democratic election which put the Hamas in charge of, of uh, running 
the Gaza. The Palestinians deal with two basic parties, the Fatah and the Hamas, and the Hamas are a derivative of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. And I was trying to find on the Internet a map today, uh, that a recent map, uh, and couldn't find one, of how the uh, Muslim Brotherhood has managed to take over so many different countries. Recently you have Tunisia uh, and Egypt, and it, it's very likely that, that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood could uh, get, gain a significant foothold in Syria if Assad falls. And what we're witnessing today, especially with radical uh, Wahhabism, which is one of the most radical Islamist sects in, um, in, uh, in Islam, which controls Saudi Arabia, is you're seeing the Middle East being dominated uh, uh, more and more by radical Islamist groups. And the Muslim Brotherhood is one of the most uh, radical, even though in Egypt and in some other places there are some more, some others that are more radical. But the Hamas controls uh, Gaza, and this has caused a split in Palestinian leadership because the Fatah party controls what goes on in the so-called uh, uh, West Bank. Now, the, where did the term West Bank come from? West Bank is a term that's used uh, sometimes to describe Samaria and Judea. And those are the terms that you should use rather than the term West Bank. The term West Bank was coined by the Jordanians when they captured this land uh, west of the Jordan River in the, in the 1948 uh, war with Israel. That was Israel's war for independence. And when they drew the armistice lines that are called the green lines, called the green line because the Israeli general who drew the line on the map used a green felt tip pen. That's why it's called the green line. Except he wanted to make very sure that it was precise in the area of in Jerusalem. And so he used a more detailed map and he went block by block and he used a fine tip purple pen. So that was is often referred to as the purple line. See, you don't get that anywhere else but here. Where can you get good information like that? That's why it's called the Green Line, because they used a green pen. But the Green Line was never intended to be a border between the, um, uh, bet- between the uh, so-called Arab area of, so- uh, of so-called Palestine and the Jewish area. In fact, it was the Arabs who insisted that no language be put into the armistice agreement that would identify this as, as a border. In fact, they had language put in there to specifically state that this line was never, ever, ever to be taken as a border. That is in the official document, the Armistice Agreement. And the reason is, is because they don't want Israel to have any land whatsoever, so they didn't want to establish a, a border between uh, Jordan and Israel, they wanted to eventually have the freedom to conquer all of the land and to run the Jews into the sea. Uh, Jordan was originally called uh, uh, Transjordan. That was the name that was assigned to it after that land was uh, given by uh, uh, British to the Hashemite king, uh, kingdom for uh, Abdullah. And so it was always called Transjordan until 1948, 1948-49, when they captured the land on the west side of the Jordan. They they became known as the Kingdom of Jordan because Transjordan is a term that technically refers only to the land east of the Jordan. When they captured the land on the other side, they were no longer a kingdom just on the west side, just on the east side, rather, and so they changed the name of the kingdom to Jordan. And to distinguish one side from the other, they called the side they had al- always held or held since 19- the early 20s. They referred to it as the East Bank, and they referred to the area on the left as the West Bank. So the term West Bank was coined by the Jordanians to describe territory that they had captured uh, from the Israelis, and that only one nation in the world recognized they had a right to. No other nation recognized that they had a right to that land. It was uh, never accepted as that land. And when Israel took the uh, this territory, Judea and Samaria, and gained control of that in the 1967 war, 
which was a war with with Syria, with Egypt, and with with Jordan, when they captured uh, that territory, they weren't capturing it from the Palestinian people, so they're not occupying territory. They captured it from the illegal occupation of the Jordanians. And up until that time, Jordanians, anyone who lived in the in Judean Samaria that was Arab, traveled on a Jordanian passport. And to this day, if if you live in uh, Judea or Samaria and you are an Arab, you travel on a Jordanian passport. Uh, so they don't. Ha- there never has been a country called Palestine. There never has been a people called Palestinians. The Palestinians are a mongrel mix of various races. Most of these ethnic groups came into that area in the late 19th century when it was all under the Ottoman Empire, and they were brought in, and they came there as migrant workers and, and in order to find jobs. So the area that uh, <coughs> that we're talking about, this is Samaria and Judea. That's the area that's under the control of Fatah, and then you have the area... Uh, let me go, the area under the control of uh, Hamas down in Gaza. Now, the propaganda that we get from uh, the Hamas and from pro-Palestinians is that the, those poor Palestinian people, they're just so oppressed by the Israelis and they're under occupation, and this is, a, they call it an apartheid state, which is an actual affront to the the blacks who were under apartheid in South Africa, because uh, you have nothing like that like what was going on in uh, South Africa, in uh, Judea, Samaria, or in Gaza. But you have this kind of extremist language that comes out from the uh, liberal anti-West left, including uh, people who are very well connected to power sources in the West. For example, Lauren Booth, who's the sister of uh, Cherry Blair, the wife of former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, made a statement in 2008 where she compared the conditions in Gaza to a concentration camp. It's like Gaza. The whole Gaza Strip's like Auschwitz. And she's saying that in Gaza there was a humanitarian crisis on the scale of Darfur, that there is just... In Darfur you had massive genocide and you had hunger and you had massive uh, starvation. However, uh, here's a picture of her standing in a grocery store in Gaza. Doesn't look like the shelves are empty to me. Doesn't look like they're hurting for food. Doesn't look like it's difficult to find various products there. In fact, there's a massive amount of product there. Here is another picture of uh, uh, one of the hotels in Gaza. There's numerous hotels in Gaza, and you can. There's a the inside of the hotel on the left. You can see part of the uh, restaurant and swimming pool out past the window in the upper right, and then there's an office building in the lower right. And then in this picture, we see some of the activities going on the beach in Gaza, and on the upper right, you see the uh, uh, some of the business district, the many buildings, and looks very nice, very clean uh, in, in this area. And you also see a, a new mall that's been opened in the lower left and some of the shops in the lower right. doesn't look to me like anything that I've seen depicting um, Auschwitz or any concentration camp or anything like that. What will happen is Western photographers go in. Every city has slums. Houston has slums. New York has slums. Every place has slums. You take pictures of those places and try to convince people that that's what, what everything looks like, and uh, and it just doesn't look like that. There's a tremendous amount of money has been spent uh, in um, <clears throat> in Gaza as well as in uh, Judea and Samaria by the Israelis in order to elevate the living conditions of the people. They've been building malls and movie theaters and shopping areas and food markets and everything so that the quality of life, standard of living will improve. And as a result of that, maybe there, this will minimize uh, terrorism, raise the education level uh, among the, the, the Palestinians. So uh, Gaza is often represented uh, through a, um, uh, a lens of propaganda in, in the West, and many, many lies are told about the conditions there. And, uh, and if the conditions are those of poverty, 
Uh, I believe that it's only because the the Arabs have refused to let people advance technologically. When we were driving through Samaria and Judea, when we would go past Arab farms, they're out there using plows pulled by donkeys, and you would see off in other fields, you would see uh, tractors and other modern equipment that, uh, you know, the, the West and the U.S. specifically has a horrible tendency to just throw money at problems. And we dump billions of dollars into Africa just to solve problems. But we do, we're not realistic. There's no follow-up to make sure that if we send uh, a thousand John Deere tractors to some place, uh, we don't follow up to make sure they're being used, number one. Number two, we don't do anything to provide the infrastructure so that uh, the people who receive the tractors can actually learn to read so that they can read the manual and learn how to op- properly uh, utilize and care for the tractor that they've been given. We just give them a tractor, and we feel so good about that. And everybody talks about how much we've done to help. Well, we've just made matters worse because we don't deal with the real issues. Uh, we just waste money and think it's wonderful. So anyway, that's just a little side note on what's going on in uh, Gaza since that's mentioned in the text. So Peter responds, I mean, excuse me, Philip responds. The angel gives him an order, and this is how every believer should respond when we get a direction from the Word of God as to what we should do. We should be recognized that this is a direction from God, and this should be a normative pattern in our life. And in this case, we have the angel of the Lord directing Philip to go to Gaza, so we're told immediately that he uh, arose and he went. And he travels down there, and he travels along the road, and there is obviously behind the scenes divine guidance that there's going to be an intersection of the path of Philip and the path of this Ethiopian. But we don't read that he arose and went and, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit guided him to the place of, of uh, where he would run into this, uh, this unit. We know that's going on behind the scenes, but it's not overt. The text doesn't make a point out of always make, saying those things. The reason I say that is that uh, one of the things I've observed over, over many years of <clears throat> my experience as a Christian is that uh, you can always tell when some people are brand-new believers. They're full of enthusiasm. They're very excited about the Christian life, and that's always very refreshing. But you often find people who think that they have to talk in certain uh, sort of Christian verbiage, and they say praise the Lord every other sentence and amen and isn't God wonderful, and every time they say that something's happening, they have to say, well, the Lord did this and the Lord did that. Scripture doesn't even do that. And uh, But this shows their enthusiasm, but hopefully they'll kind of calm down after a little time and, and recognize that using verbiage like that has no spiritual value one way, uh, one way or the other. So we're told here, he arose and he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under uh, Kandaki, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship. So we'll just stop that much and try to understand a little bit about what is going on here in this verse, because this is important for setting up and understanding the whole the whole background and context, and a- answering and addressing some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, issues here. Uh, first thing I wanted to note, kind of in uh, just a continuation of the thought I just expressed related to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I see this sometimes in commentaries, and I've put a note here in my notes from a face of something from a commentary where the writer says, uh, quote, we can see Philip's yieldedness to the Spirit's control and his obedience. I don't know how he can see it because there's no mention of yieldedness there's mention of his obedience, but there's no mention of the Holy Spirit yet. It's a response to the angel. And this is just the subtle ways in which people read things into the text. And I'm just saying we have to be careful not to read things into the text. The so Holy Spirit plays a key role in this, as we see in verse 29, but don't confuse the Holy Spirit in verse 29 with the angel in verse 20, uh, 26. 
That's all I'm saying there. So we see this man of Ethiopia. Now, this is very interesting to understand the background for him because under normal circumstances, as I've said, we would think of this Ethiopian as, um, as a Gentile. But the scriptures are very clear when we get to Acts chapter 10 that the first Gentiles to be saved and to become part of the church are the uh, are con- the, the members of Cornelius' household, Cornelius and his household of the first Gentiles. So this isn't a Gentile. Those in Samaria weren't Gentiles. They're sort of um, half Jewish in their background, partially Jewish or proselytes or something. They're, they stand in sort of a never-never uh, land, but they're not they were not considered by Jews to be full Gentiles, and they're not considered by Scripture to be full Gentiles uh, because of their relationship to the Jews. So we're still seeing the expansion of the church in a primarily Jewish context. Now, these Ethi- this Ethiopian thing is very uh, interesting. Uh, Ethiopia in Scripture uh, doesn't refer specifically to mo- the modern state of Ethiopia, but what is uh, mostly in the modern uh, nation of Sudan. It's the area at the lower part of this map that I've put up here. It is uh, uh, the area called Cush in the Old Testament. It's also referred to as um, as uh, Nabatea in the um, <clears throat> in the, in the scriptures. And so this is the area that is, uh, or excuse me, it's also the area known as Nubia. And it extends uh, south of the first cataract on the on the Nile, so it's more in the area of the nation of uh, of Khartoum. The uh, term, the Greek word for Ethiopia, is Ethiops, which has as its basic meaning uh, burnt face. So there was a normal expectation of any reader at this time that if you were speaking of the Ethiopian people then you were speaking of a black-skinned or dark-skinned people who were from this area uh, south, of, south of Egypt. Now, a question has, that we should ask because of the significance of what's going on in uh, Scripture related to Jews and Gentiles is just exactly what's the identity of this, of this, uh, of this Ethiopian. And the first option is that he is actually Jewish. Now, I don't think that is the case, but I do think that that is a possibility. And we have seen this in modern times. Uh, there is a huge, number of, um, a huge number of Ethiopians who were airlifted to Israel back in the 80s and in the 90s and are considered by the Jews to be uh, Jewish. And so we ought to ask the question, well, what's the claim there? What's the basis for them having this claim to be Jewish? And uh, exactly what is the uh, their identification? There were two major operations that took place back in the, uh, back in the late 20th century. The first occurred in, in 1984 and 1985 and was a somewhat secret operation known as Operation Moses. This involved a massive airlift of Ethiopian Jews to Israel over a period of several months, and approximately 8,500 Jews were taken to Israel. But when information about this leaked out to the press and they began to find out about this, uh, due to international pressure, the uh, Jewish community shut down the operation. Then about six years later, in May of 1991, due to uh, the persecution of these, uh, they were called uh, in a, a very derogatory term called falashas by the, uh, by the Ethiopians, uh, they were uh, under persecution. There was a massive airlift that took place known as Operation Solomon. And here are just a sort of a collage of pictures where you see many of them loading up on uh, 757s on jumbo jets on, and uh, the article in the lower left talks about how they El uh, Al broke a passenger load record on the 757, and how they rescued these Ethiopian Jews because they were under perse- great persecution and um, an opposition, and over a very short period of time, uh, in fact, uh, over a 24-hour period of time. 
the Israelis did a massive airlift of 35,000 Ethiopians into Israel and set all kinds of records in, in doing that. So there have been several uh, suggestions as to who these people are. Uh, some have suggested that they were members of the Ten Lost Tribes. Remember, the Ten Lost Tribes refers to the ten tribes that were in uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel, which was conquered in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And they were uh, <coughs> removed from their traditional homeland and sort of resettled in different areas of the Assyrian Empire. Well, the Assyrian Empire is the area that goes from Iraq, I mean, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, uh, areas of northern Iran. And so this this um, is, is in the complete opposite direction from uh, from Ethiopia and from northern Africa. So they're really probably not members of the Ten Lost Tribes. The second option has to do with the legends that have been uh, carried on down through the centuries by the uh, Ethiopian people and by this group that refer to themselves as the Beta Israel or the House of Israel, that they trace their origins back to uh, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba that Solomon and the Queen of Sheba had a child, and when the Queen of Sheba was uh, pregnant by Solomon, when she went back to Ethiopia, she had a son, and this is the beginning of uh, this dynasty that extended all the way down to Haile Selassie, who was the last uh, emperor of Ethiopia. Uh, we don't, nobody is really sure how much of that uh, is true. There's another option, and that is that this is a product of intermarriage between Jews who left uh, Judea with Jeremiah uh, for Egypt and when uh, Jer- Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C., and then some of those Jews who went to Egypt later went further south into, um, uh, into the area of, uh, of Ethiopia. There are, um, there's another view, and that is that there were a number of converts in the entourage, huge entourage that would have accompanied the Queen of Sheba uh, to uh, the court of Solomon, that there was a, a large number of these people who converted to uh, biblical Judaism. To They became full uh, proselytes, full converts uh, to uh, the Jewish religion, Israelite religion in the Old Testament, and when they went back to Ethiopia, they followed that, and they became a little bit segregated in their society and culture. But they continued down through the uh, down through the ages. There's been a lot of speculation as to exactly who these Ethiopian Jews are, but we don't know uh, enough information about them. The information about uh, Sheba and Solomon comes from mostly from First Kings uh, chapter ten. Now, one of the interesting things about this community is it's very clear that they have a very ancient claim to being Jewish because they practice all of the Mosaic law, they practice all of the customs of Judaism, but it's not a second temple period Judaism. It is not a rabbinical form of, of Judaism. They have not, uh, they have no understanding or awareness of any of the uh, rabbinic practices that were common in the um, uh, time of Christ or the period just prior to Christ. They have no knowledge of any of the uh, rabbinic laws that were uh, enacted after the Old Testament period ended. They only know of Old Testament Judaism. Uh, another reason that we can know that their uh, origins are ancient is uh, partially based here on our account in Acts 8, uh, the story of, the, of Philip with the Ethiopian uh, eunuch, that he is present. So there's an obvious Jewish awareness and knowledge of Judaism in Ethiopia and an awareness uh, to the degree that this Ethiopian eunuch, who is a very highly placed court official, has made pilgrimage at one of the three uh, annual feast days to uh, to Jerusalem in order to worship at at the temple, and so this gives us a little biblical validation for an ancient Jewish community among the um, among the Ethiopians. So there are basically four options in identifying this Ethiopian. The first is that he truly was a, a Jew. He was a, a there's a, a ethnic relationship there. That's uh, probably not likely. The second way in which a Gentile could become a Jew 
or be considered Jewish was to become a full proselyte uh, to Judaism. And in this case, they would um, uh, accept all of the Torah and all of the customs and all of the practices of the Jews, and that this would uh, be a complete part of their um, uh, of their life and their uh, their religion. Uh, this is probably not the case with the uh, the Ethiopian because it's most likely he was a eunuch. Now, it's not just a title for somebody who was uh, in a in a uh, role of personal servitude to the uh, royal family but it's most likely probably that he was. And if he was a eunuch, then according to Deuteronomy 23.1, he would not be allowed to enter into the uh, inner courts of the, of the temple to, to worship. He would, could have gone only as far as the courtyard of the Gentiles. And so he could not be a full proselyte to Judaism uh, if he was a eunuch. So this would mean that the third option would be mo- most likely and this was a reference to a proselyte of the gate. Now, these terms of uh, proselyte, proselyte of the gate, and then the fourth term, God-fearer or a God-worshipper, these were terms that are used in uh, extant literature from the Second Temple period. So a proselyte of the gate was someone who b- believed, who Gentile, but they believed and worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for the most part, they accepted the customs and the practices of Judaism, but they did not have to submit to the rite of circumcision. And so this is uh, likely what he was, whereas we're told in the text in Acts chapter 10, when we come to uh, Cornelius, that Cornelius was a God-fearer. This is the last category here. He's not considered a, a proselyte or a proselyte of the gate, but a Gentile who worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alone, who uh, lived as best they could according to the laws of Torah, but did not necessarily have to follow or uh, accept all of the customs and all the practices of the Jews. So this is our identification of the, um, of the Ethiopian. He was probably a proselyte of the gate, which explains why he has his own personal copy of Isaiah. And this would have been uh, extremely rare in the ancient world. You would ha- usually a person, only a person of some uh, wealth or some means, would be able to own their own personal copy, their own personal scroll of um, of Isaiah. And so that's what he has. He is uh, reading through Isaiah in Acts eight twenty eight. We're told that uh, uh, he was returning from Jerusalem. And he's sitting in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. And the term that is used for reading there fits with the normal usage of the word uh, at this time, where he was reading it out loud. And one of the reasons they read out loud was this facilitated memory. And they would memorize the scripture. This is something that, uh, sadly, we have fallen on... um, uh, really poor times, I think, in modern evangelicalism. I remember as a child that there were uh, getting uh, representatives of the Bible Memory Association would come to the church and talk about the importance of Bible memory, and kids would go to Bible memory camp, and they would come back at the end of a week and they would memorize 200, 300 uh, verses, but they would internalize, learn these verses. And, and I remember going to camp uh, up at Camp Penal and usually memorizing uh, 20, 30, 40, or 50 Bible verses, which has really come ha- come in handy over the years as a pastor. But uh, that was emphasized. It was emphasized in Sunday school that we had to memorize uh, Scripture. In fact, I remember teaching um, on the uh, problem-solving devices in uh, prep school to six, uh, sixth graders uh, about 20 years ago, and what I basically did was had them memorize and come to understand two promises for each problem-solving device. That's how I taught the whole the whole thing, because if they're going to sit after a year, <coughs> if, they, if they can still recite 20 verses on the, of the problem-solving devices and they've got, can have them all memorized and recite them all together, then I felt like I'd accomplished something significant because they should remember uh, what they were all about and how to claim those promises. And today we have people who, who they get put in a bind 
they don't know what, what to do. And we're becoming so dependent upon so much technology today that one of these days if we don't have technology, a lot of people aren't going to be able to access any Bible because they don't know it in their souls. And most of you remember during the Vietnam War the stories we would hear and books that were written afterwards by numerous POWs of how they comforted themselves in their cells by the Bible verses that they remembered. And I remember reading uh, one book called In the Presence of My Enemies, uh, and I don't remember the name of the author or anything, but I've always remembered the fact that he, he had, he, he just didn't have that much scripture memorized. And he'd grown up going to church and he had bits and pieces. And he said, you know, that was the case with many of these pilots. They, they just knew bits and pieces of different verses, but they managed to figure out a, a code where they could tap and they could uh, pass messages back and forth to each other, and they would, over time, cobble together Bible verses and promises that they could claim and rely on during their time uh, of imprisonment uh, with the Viet Cong. And so it is vital that we learn Scripture. In fact, in in Orthodox uh, Judaism and among the Hasidic groups, uh, the young children are expected to have the Torah memorized by the time they're eight or nine years of age, and by the time they have bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, they're expected to have all of the Old Testament memorized. That's the expectation. And unfortunately, Christian parents have lowered the bar to the point where they just hope that their kids can uh, can somewhat roughly explain the gospel by the time they're uh, 13 or 14 years of age, not to mention any Bible verses being memorized. So we really should uh, change our whole priority on that. There was this emphasis in the culture to learn by rote memory. And yet today, if you are in education and you say anything about rote memory, you're considered to be somewhat antediluvian. And yet most people who were educated, who made most of the brilliant discoveries and inventions upon which everything modern is built, came up through education systems built on rote memory. And so this is should not be looked down upon uh, by modern schemes of education. We, it, it teaches you how to learn and how to retain things. The more you memorize things, the more you will remember things. And the more you train your mind to memorize and remember things, uh, the, the more uh, you will, uh, the, the easier it will become and the more you will remember. And who knows what kind of an impact that might have. Uh, down through the uh, years if you get Alzheimer's or some other form uh, form of dementia. And I remember talking with Jim Myers one time. The same things works for hymns, and I'm going to be talking about both of these things coming up starting this Sunday. Same things works for hymns. People should memorize hymns. And it's uh, Jim was telling the story about going in and seeing a, a man in his, that was in his church many, many years ago, and he had Alzheimer's, and he went in, and he really couldn't carry on a conversation, but then he would start uh, singing some hymns, and he would just come right in and join with him and sing all the hymns, and all the words came back to him, and, and they would uh, uh, sing these great hymns. And so it's important to get this into your soul through Bible memory and, and, uh, and learning hymns. So that's what he's doing. He's reading Isaiah the prophet uh, outside, I mean, excuse me, out loud. And as Philip comes running up, he hears what he is, what he is reading. And he hears him reading uh, from Isaiah chapter uh, 53. Now, this is, um, <clears throat> this is an important thing to note here because as he's reading Isaiah the prophet, he doesn't fully comprehend what it is that he's reading. Now, a point I want to make here is that I often emphasize, and I'm going to be emphasizing this a lot in coming weeks, that everybody needs to be involved in some kind of Bible reading program. You should have a schedule where you're reading a chapter, two chapters, three chapters, four chapters, five chapters every day, because this is the Word of God that washes through your brain. And you, you, there are going to, of course there are going to be passages that you read that you don't understand. There are passages I read that I don't understand. And I don't stop and take the time to go back and look at them. I may put a question mark in the margin so I can look at it later, but I'm reading to be reminded of promises. So if I see verses where there's a promise, I can underline the promise. I'm re- being reminded of how God worked in the lives of believers in the past. I'm reading to be reminded of circumstances and situations and events 
that took place in the Scripture, and I am reading to be reminded of certain key doctrines. We should be reading the Scriptures on a regular, regular basis. And unfortunately today, that is a practice that has fallen upon uh, very difficult times. And so he's reading, but he's not really understanding or comprehending. But because he's reading, he has a frame of reference for a conversation. Today, you go into a public school, if you could get into a public school, you go into any sort of environment where there are children and you are, are adults, for that matter, and you try to talk about the Bible, you're in serious trouble because they're biblically illiterate. Even among a lot of Christians in a lot of churches, they're biblically illiterate. They don't know the events. They don't know the people. So you can't even have an informed conversation about the gospel, about God, about spiritual things, because people don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the information. They don't have the knowledge. And even if you're reading and you're not understanding everything that's there, you're not understanding but maybe 10% of what's there, you're still learning about people, places, events, and things. And that then becomes a foundation in your, in your thinking for conversation and learning later on. But when you don't have the basic vocabulary, you don't know who Adam and Eve were, you don't know Noah, Abraham, Isaiah, Matt, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you think the epistles are basically the wives of the apostles, then nobody can have an intelligent conversation about the Bible. Uh, you can't have an intelligent conversation about uh, anything related to God. So we need to be at least basic, have a basic uh, understanding uh, of the Scripture. So he's reading uh, in Isaiah the prophet, and he reads in Isaiah 53, 7, uh, he was oppressed... And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. So this comes from Isaiah, as it says up on the screen, Isaiah 53, uh, 7 and 8. And so as he's reading this out loud, uh, God the Holy Spirit gives further direction to Philip. Verse 29, then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. Now just another thing that you should note as you read. This is the first time in this episode that God the Holy Spirit's been mentioned. Does that mean that God the Holy Spirit was inactive through the rest of this? No, not at all. It's just not the point uh, the background, the point of the, of the story, and this is not the normative pattern of divine guidance. But at this point, the Spirit, not the angel of the Lord of verse 26, but the Holy Spirit audibly communicates to Philip. That's the normal sense of the word. And uh, I, I'm amazed how many commentators said, well, he had an impression of what he should do. It's not what the text says. The text says he was given direct specific information. God, the Holy Spirit, didn't give him some sort of uh, inner liver quiver so that he would have a sense of the right thing to do. The Holy Spirit's very specific. He says, run up and overtake the chariot. And as Philip did this, verse 30, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And uh, the man says, like most Christians in the pew today, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And this shows that understanding, it's not just enough to read the Scripture. Reading the Scripture on your own is important. It's vital. It's critical. But it's not going to get you there. You have to have someone who can guide you in understanding the Scripture. That is the role of the pastor-teacher. That's why God has given the spiritual gift to the pastor-teacher. And the pastor-teacher is a man who can, has, is gifted and is trained, and that's very important. Just because you have a gift doesn't mean you know how to use it or you can are you automatically use it. And there's too many churches and pastors who have forgotten that today, and they would rather just have somebody who has the gift rather than somebody who has been trained. And a man with a gift with no training is just a, he's a time bomb. He is, he is trouble in the making because he doesn't know enough uh, to stay out of trouble. So 
the Ethiopian recognized he, he needed guidance, and it's at this point we'll take up next time as Philip goes back into Isaiah. And I think that even though it just mentions Isaiah 53, 7, and 8 here, as we've seen in so many places in Scripture, uh, that's not the only thing they would have talked about. It's not the only verses that uh, Philip would have heard. Many times in Scripture, a uh, when there's an Old Testament quote, it is really a reference to an entire passage and not just to uh, just to one verse or necessarily one phrase. So here there's a good indication that he's talking about the entire prophecy of Isaiah 53. And the eunuch is asking one question. And it's important to pay attention to this. In verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, of whom does the prophet say, say this, of himself or of some other man? He's not asking any other theological or doctrinal question that we might ask. He's just saying, who's he talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? And that's what opens the door to this Tremendous conversation and opportunity to communicate the gospel and to clarify the gospel for the uh, uh, Ethiopian. And there's some things that we are going to touch on there that are important for just understanding uh, the whole process of, of witnessing and sharing the gospel with, with other people. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to study these things, to work our way through this episode, to see how... Uh, you guided uh, Philip directly and indirectly through the, his ministry from Jerusalem to Samaria and then down to the Ethiopian, how you prepared the Ethiopian, how you are constantly working behind the scenes, even though uh, we don't have an overt sense of uh, what you are doing. Nevertheless, we know that you are guiding and directing uh, history. You leave decisions in many pla- many ways up to us as to how we are to implement things on the basis of application of your word. Father, we pray that you would challenge us as we read through this, as we look at Philip and his responsiveness to divine directives, as we look at the life of the uh, Ethiopian and his desire to...